Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Yeah, those fruited plains. Give me some of those purple mountains majesty. The sea and the other shining sea. I mean, mm, what can you say? The earth is hot. Sadly, I think I'd much prefer inhabitants of this planet felt an unhealthy sexual tension between the Earth and themselves rather than hold a firm belief that the planet is warming out of control. Both of those views indicate some sort of a mental instability, but only one of those views directly impacts me, and you, and all of humanity. Only one of those views is accepted by a large percentage of people as perfectly normal, and only one of those views requires destroying humanity as a necessary action. In case you're confused and wondering, it's the view that the planet is warming out of control. That's the that's the bad one. On today's episode, first we're going to talk about how everything is cyclical. Round and round we go. Except for that, not that. That is out of control. Then we'll ask that age-old question, is the Pope science? And as always, the goal update after the bumper. And let me warn you up front, I've been doing some thinking and some why asking, and you may have thoughts. So go find yourself a good shade tree, you're gonna need it in a few million years, and check in with your Catholic friends, they might need someone to talk to. Here we go. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Already it has been for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things, which will be. There will be, for them, no remembrance among those who will come later still. Or, if that's not your thing, maybe you'd prefer, round and round. With love, we'll find a way, just give it time. Round and round, what comes around, goes around. I'll tell you why. Yeah. Either way you think of it, either in terms of the wisest man to ever live, you know, King Solomon, or arguably the best band to ever exist, Rat, everything is cyclical. It was, it, it isn't now, give it time, it will be again. Oh, side note, <laughs> I said Rat is arguably the best band to ever exist. I mean, you know, I, I like a couple of their songs, but I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying that, really, when you when you come right down to it, anything can be argued by someone, and I have no doubt that someone is arguing for this and more power to them. Now, we, speaking of humanity, having divorced ourselves from the Bible, some completely, some in large part, a remnant that hasn't, seem to forget some very basic yet eternally true lessons, such as those we learned from Rat. But, I mean Solomon. This world is cyclical. We see this in a short-term way in things such as hairstyles, clothing styles, home decor, baby names. They're all popular for a while. They go away for a generation or so and then they come back again. Or at least most of them. I have a hard time seeing shag carpeting in the bathroom as a trend will return to. However, on a cold winter morning, or when you're curled up on the floor because of that 24-hour stomach virus, uh, but no, no, 
No, that trend probably shouldn't return. Probably. Uh, likely you've heard of Pangea. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, didn't put my blinker on there on that topic change. This was the last time that all of the land on the Earth fit together as one supercontinent, before it all split apart and gave us the continental and land configuration that we see today. But the theory is that there were supercontinents, or at least single global land masses, prior to Pangea. I found a nice YouTube video entitled, quote, The Supercontinents Before Pangea. Clever. By Knowledge Husk from seven years ago that gives us some very brief insight into everything they absolutely pretend to know from absolutely billions of years ago. Let me give you a brief rundown. Now keep in mind that we absolutely think that we know that the Earth formed 4.7 billion years ago. So with that in mind, 3.6 billion years ago, we had our first landmass named Valbara. It was very tiny, but it was the only continent at the time. It still exists today as small pieces of northwest Australia and the southeastern tip of Africa. And how do we know this? Well, we don't. Literally, the video says that this is just a theory, but, but then it goes on to tell us about what it did. In fact, a sentence that was actually spoken in the video was, quote, since it's so far back, very little is known about this theorized landmass. Okay, th that's not a real sentence. Okay, it, this is a theory. In other words, it's completely made up. You don't know anything about this because it's a theory. Uh, I mean, look, you can have theories that have evidence, but, but not from a supposed 3.6 billion years ago. I mean, this is a fairy tale. Okay, don't worry, though, because after Valbara, we get Ur. Now, this was from 3 billion years ago, and according to the video, it's confirmed. This one was, again, essentially the single landmass in the globe, but was most likely smaller than Australia in total. It, too, is split into various current-day landmasses. Then we jump about 500 million years to only 2.5 billion years ago, and we get the supercontinent of Colombia. Now, this is a bigger one, and apparently we have evidence that that one existed. So that's nice. Now we're going to move forward in time another 1.2 billion years to a mere 1.3 billion years ago, and we come to Rodinia. Now, this was a good-sized fella, oftentimes mentioned as the other major supercontinent coming before Pangaea. After about 500 million years, it started to break apart, which, of course, that just wreaked havoc with the climate, causing a global ice age. 650 million years ago, we get to Pinocchia. No, not Pinocchio. Pinocchia, another large, mostly connected supercontinent, which was almost entirely in the Southern Hemisphere. Just a few years later, 80 million years later, we get to Gondwana. Now, this was another huge landmass that mostly lives south of the equator. The temperatures were much hotter than today, probably because of SUVs, so everything died. No, that's not right. According to their totally fact-based, evidence-based theory, the higher temperatures, I mean, believe this or not, caused the continent to be covered in lush green forests, and it allowed for the evolution of arthropods, fish, amphibians, and reptiles. Almost seems like an elevated global temperature isn't a bad thing. In, in theory, of course. Then Gondwana met up and apparently got married to the continent of Laurasia. Now, Laurasia is where we know for a fact that the Appalachia Mountains were created when the smaller continents of North America and Eurasia smashed together to create Laurasia. Then, when Gondwana and Laurasia tied the knot about 250 million years ago, 
we get to Pangaea. When Pangaea split up into what we have today, about 95% of marine species and 70% of land species died. As for the timeline of our current globe, well, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but here we go. 200 million years ago, North America split from Africa, probably because we're racist or something. 150 million years ago, Gondwana split into Africa and South America. At that same time, Antarctica, Australia, and India all split apart and started wandering around the globe. 50 million years ago, Europe and North America split obviously. 40 million years ago, after touring the globe, India decided to smash into and latch onto Asia, and here we are today. Now, the video starts with stating that this entire idea of continental drift, the idea that the land is just wandering about the globe, was thought up or dreamt up in 1912 by German, why does it, it always come, geophysicist Alfred Wegener, so I guess we have Alfie to thank for these theories. The theory is that all these land masses move around because great chunks of the Earth move relative to each other due to the large cracks in the crust, breaking the Earth into tectonic plates. The prevailing theory is that the crust of the Earth suddenly went from not cracked to cracked into these plates about three billion years ago, which of course is when the single continent of, say it with me, er popped its head up out of the water. This theory is based on the analysis of a single mineral type in order to calculate crustal growth, which I just got to be honest, that's a fantastic term, crustal growth. I got to say, this is quite simply stupid because now found on Forbes.com headline, Earth's first tectonic plates formed slowly over a billion years, new study suggests. See, according to a new study published by researchers from Pennsylvania State University, analyzing the crust the old-fashioned way is simplistic, because by only looking at the single mineral type, they can miss the fact that mineral grains can recrystallize at other points that give erroneously young dates for the mineral. But the researchers for this study will not be fooled by that. <laughs> oh, nay, nay. Quote, even the rock record is not perfect, but the team used a trick. Ooh, a trick, those little shysters. The researchers developed a new method by experimentally analyzing how igneous rock reworked and reformed over time, looking at how the minerals and grains changed based on reworking. Based on their new data, they reanalyzed the crustal growth and found that some of the oldest rocks were actually up to 4 billion years old. That conclusively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, indisputably until the next research paper disputes it, proves that the continents and tectonic plates started forming 4 billion years ago, and then after a mere 1 billion years, the rate slowed to what we already know to be true. Now I say that, but the head researcher did caution that this could be reanalyzed and the theory modified in the future because there are just... Simply too few data points covering the first billion years of the Earth. Just, uh, just too few. See, finding three billion year old rock is rare, apparently, and there are only a few known places to get four billion year old rocks. <laughs> so, uh huh. Now, if all this sounds familiar, like you're experiencing deja vu all over again, it's likely because you already read all about this in your copy of the journal Geochemical Perspective Letters, which is easily one of my favorite journals regarding perspective letters. But that probably goes without saying. 
So if you ignore the fact that man is totally causing the planet to get extremely hot, like by a degree, because we just don't care if this planet becomes even more covered in lush green forests and allows animals to flourish, then I guess we're all good here. We're happy, right? The continents are happy. All's right with this cracked world. But no, no. Found on NewScientist.com or NewsScientist.com. I'm not really sure the URL is unclear. Headline, nearly all mammals will go extinct in 250 million years as Earth warms. And why is Earth going to warm? S-U-Vs. Oh, wait, no, not exactly. Actually, the byline says, quote, If humans still exist millions of years from now, they will face inhospitably warm conditions on a supercontinent centered at the equator. Most land mammals won't be able to survive. <sighs> round and round. What comes around goes around. I'll tell you why. Thank you, rat. Prophetic as always. Well, as it turns out, the writing is on the wall for mammals. And don't forget, you and I are mammals, so that... Pardon the crassness, but that kind of sucks. I mean, I had plans, but I guess I can flush those down the toity now, can't I? Turns out we're all going to die because a computer model predicts it. Oh, yes, you heard that right, a computer model. <laughs> Your arguments are now made invalid. The article states that this horrible heat death, a quarter of a billion years from now, really has nothing to do with man-caused climate change, which... Uh, well, let's just say that I agree completely with that. Apparently, per the infallible model that was created by people who create models inputting the data that they think is relative into the models to calculate modeled results based on man's assumptions, there are two things that will drive mammalian extinction, which that's another great term. First, the sun is getting hotter. Now, I don't know why we care about the massive fiery orb in the sky 250 million years from now. We sure don't believe it has anything to do with anything today, but whatever. The second problem is that we're all going to be a supercontinent again. And if you want to get a jump on updating your address, your continent already has a name. Ready? You know, write this down here. Pangea Ultima. <laughs> How creative. The study apparently predicts that the landmass on the equator will be so hot. How hot will it be? It'll be so hot that if you live on the equator, you'll you'll die. Yeah, I know it's it's not really funny, but mass mammalian extinction isn't a joke. Thank you very much, and I'll thank you not to laugh at it. And and since we're now Pangea Ultima, all that land has floated from the poles to join up with. You know, the Pangea Ultima thing. So we can't even go lounge at a nice icy pole to cool off anymore. The sun, incidentally, is going to be so much hotter. How much hotter will the sun be? <laughs> It'll be so much hotter that there will be about 2.5% more heat energy reaching the Earth. Uh, these jokes are terrible. Now, 2.5% doesn't sound like a lot. You know, because it... Because it isn't. I mean, I went out looking for solar energy hitting the Earth, the amount of radiation hitting the Earth, which is called insulation and is measured in watts per square meter. I found a graph that shows the amount of insulation for the northern hemisphere by month. If you're at the equator, and for the last time, the equator is spelled with an O, not an E. So if you're at the equator, it appears that the lowest period of insulation is in June at about 380 watts per meter squared. And the highest rate is either in March or September at about 440 watts per meter squared. Looking at 
average temperatures, that 16% difference in insulation causes a deadly temperature swing from about 76 degrees Fahrenheit to about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, literally no way to survive a 2.5% energy increase, right? Well, it gets worse here. At 30 degrees north latitude, we'll find cities like New Orleans or St. Augustine or St. Augustine, Florida, or Cairo or Delhi. So this line of latitude ranges from about 230 watts per meter squared in December and January to a peak of about 480 watts per meter squared in July. That's a nearly 210% increase in solar energy and a temperature fluctuation from about 60 degrees F to about 85 degrees F on average. Moving to 60 degrees north latitude, think Anchorage, Alaska, we see an insulation change from about 30 watts per meter squared in the winter months to about 470 watts per meter squared in the summer, a 1,567% change. And at the North Pole, there is essentially no insulation from September to March, with a peak of about 520 watts per meter squared in June. That's an infinite percentage increase. Now, I don't know. Maybe the 2.5% they're referring to is something else, but this graph I found is labeled as solar energy reaching the Earth. So again, 2.5% just doesn't seem like much, does it? But no, yeah, no, I'm wrong. The computer model tells me so. The model says that because of these two things, CO2 will climb, of course, possibly aided by volcanoes. Oh, that's perish the thought. Less CO2 will be absorbed by rocks because of some reason and we're dead. The research team, such as they are, used a geochemical model to calculate CO2 levels over time. Then they plugged the results of that model into a climate model. Now we're two models deep. In fact, when you back out enough, it's models all the way down. And of course, heat death is the result of that model squared. In almost all of the computer model scenarios, it gets too hot to the point that we'd probably prefer using air conditioning or something. I mean, there's no way we could survive a wet bulb temperature of 95 degrees Fahrenheit. The article says that we can't cool ourselves naturally anymore. Okay, but, but are we all living outside all of the time in 250 million years? Because what happened to the houses and the buildings? But no, I... In a quarter billion years, we won't have houses and buildings and AC or fans or shade. Nothing. We will have nothing or something. So if life around the equator is this bad and Pangea Ultima is all the land mashed back together, right? It's a big continent. Just live away from the middle. Well, the model model thought of that too. See, quote, it is possible some land mammals might cling on around the edges of Pangea Ultima, but the extreme weather in these places would make life very tough. You might still get some which still survive this, but whether they come out as the dominant species again is a, is a very open question. But if not mammals, who or what, right? Well, what do we all know that migrates long distances and has a higher body temperature, thus can withstand higher wet bulb temperatures? Again, say it with me, birds. Yeah, that's right. But no, that's that's not right, and these scientists so-called have just revealed their ignorance. As we all know, birds aren't real. I mean, per the website or movement, birdsaren'treal.com, quote, the birds aren't real movement has been active since 1976. Once a preventative cause, our initial goal was to stop the genocide of real birds. Unfortunately, this was unsuccessful, and the government has since replaced every living bird with robotic replicas. 
Now our movement's prerogative is to make everyone aware of this fact. Okay, that's a real that's a real site and a real movement. Just just FYI, I put the put the link in the notes for you there if you want to look into the birds aren't real thing. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that the birds or the bird robots are around on Pangaea Ultima in a quarter billion years. Apparently, they have a better chance of survival than mammals. Or, as the article says, seeing as we all know that birds evolved from dinosaurs, maybe reptiles or dinosaurs will re-evolve and take over Pangaea Ultima. And that's sad for us. But at least the dinosaurs and dino birdsosauruses can live for eternity and happiness on Pangaea Ultima. But no, that's apparently not right either. Apparently, these science-talking guys think that Pangaea Ultima will break up as well. I feel like a parent here. Will you just sit down and stop moving around? Yeah, it'll break up again, but that's not the problem. The problem is that in a billion years, the sun will get too hot. And all of our oxygen, or at least most of it, just poof, gone. Now we're down to microbes. But they're not even safe. Apparently, in a few billion years, our sun will get hot enough that it'll destroy Earth. Of course, by then, we might be on other planets, or some beings might be. And the article ends with, quote, But eventually, even the universe may end. And now I'm looking around for a bridge to jump off of. <laughs> I mean, if all we've got is a couple billion years, I mean, what's the point? Back to the top of the article, it starts with a senior research associate from the University of Bristol, UK, saying that in 250 million years, when everything starts to turn, you know, belly up, quote, you'd hope that we'd be a spacefaring civilization by that point. Ah, okay, where do I start here? I mean, this entire thing is ridiculous. In fact, I think the most plausible thing I've mentioned thus far is that the birds aren't real. The rest of this is just silly, to be quite honest. Let's look at the supercontinents. I mean, I can't cover everything here, but let's look at the supercontinents. I covered this before. It's been quite a while, so let's hit it again. Now, rock-solid Christian historical science organizations, such as Answers in Genesis and Institute for Creation Research, uh, AIG and ICR, respectively, they agree generally with secular scientists that in the past there were supercontinents like Rodinia and Pangaea. They don't agree with the timeline of millions or billions of years, of course, but they agree that there were supercontinents and that at some point generally agreed to be the flood of Noah, the Earth's crust fractured, and the resulting plates resulted in the rearrangement of the masses of land into what we have today. Knowing that I can be wrong and prefacing my comments to come with that, knowing that much smarter people than I specialized in these fields hold to that belief, I personally can't find a logical way to make this work. Now, I'm not alone in this, in the world of Christian young earth creation science, but I'm very likely in the minority. So why do I stubbornly hold to this belief, knowing that at some point I may jerk awake in the middle of the night to find Ken Ham standing over my bed, stating in his Australian accent, I have a very particular set of skills. Now, I know that wasn't an Australian accent. I can't do one of those. Well, here's what we know. Per the Bible, which argues for a young earth of less than 10,000 years, closer to 6,000 years. First, we know that in the beginning, the earth was covered with water. At least, this is the implication we kind of have to arrive at when reading Genesis 1, verse 2, which says, quote, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And we do that in conjunction with verses 6 and 7, where God separated the waters above the sky from those below the sky. Keep that in mind. That comes into play later. And then finally, in conjunction with verse 9 and 10, which states, quote, Then God 
God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Okay. Also, from verses 9 and 10, it must be inferred that the dry land was all one supercontinent, for lack of a better term, however large that mass of land was, which we have no way of knowing. When all the waters were gathered into one place, that implies that we had a mass of land surrounded by all the waters. Now, next, I think it's biblically accurate to infer that the cracks in the crust of the earth, the splitting into a number of plates, took place during Noah's flood. Genesis 7, verses 11 and 12 say, quote, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day all of the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now we know that there's a large amount of water under the crust of the earth even still today, but there are also massive caverns in the crust where I'd have to believe that the fountains of the deep used to reside. And when the crust split apart above it, whether that was done by God directly or by an unbelievable impact by a massive asteroid, which we know has happened at some point in the past, or a combination of those things, that water blew up and out to the surface. This also implies that the water was under pressure. Keep that in mind. That's also important. We know at the same time the fountains of the deep ruptured upward, the floodgates of the sky were open. Now, this is where whatever water that was above the firmament collapsed back down onto the earth. This is another point where I break from AIG and ICR. I happen to believe that the canopy theory of some sort of water layer that protected itself around the earth is absolutely correct, where they either discount it or they just ignore it. To finish off the floodwaters, notice that the 40 days of rain came after the floodgates open and the fountains below ruptured. Quote, then the rain came upon the earth. Now, the water pretty much stayed constant for 150 days. That's what the Bible says. Then according to chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we find, quote, Then God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded from the earth, going forth and returning. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. Okay, so we had a wind that started moving waters around. At the same time, denoted by the word also, the fountains of the deep, the floodgates of heaven, and the rain were all stopped. At this point, the water started to recede. As the Bible says, the water returned. Now, we need to move over to Psalm 104, where although poetic, I believe it's giving us some historical geological facts here. Quote, The mountains went up, the valleys went down to the place which you founded for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. So, in order for valleys, great valleys, ocean basins to sink down, and mountains, just large mountain ranges to rise up, you have to squish massive amounts of land, ground crust, together, and it'll either go down or up. Using the very little biblical context we have, it sounds to me like there was a massive amount of water under the earth held under great pressure. When the pressure was released, the crust of the earth started to collapse on itself. I think that the diameter of the earth used to be slightly greater than it is now. 
the releasing of the fountains of the deep allowed the crust to kind of smush down on itself, which caused your land masses, valleys, and mountain ranges to either sink down or rise up. Additionally, from a logical viewpoint, the continents aren't islands. In fact, under the oceans, well, hold on to your butts for this one, is land. It's not just a void to the center of the earth or anything down there. The entire earth all the way around is fully connected, although with fractures, which cause earthquakes from time to time when they slip past each other just a little bit. If you go back to the original article, they have a nifty illustration of the globe going through a billion years of tectonic plate movement. But the plates keep changing shape and size. They merge and then they split again or they just change shape. To me, logically, this is impossible, <laughs> at least to this kind of scale and extent. But this is what would have to happen if the theories of Pangaea at all were to be believed. I'd argue that the plates at most change shape only slightly, not enough to do with these theories, say. And these plates could never rearrange around the globe. You know, those little sliding number puzzle game things, right? It's like a 4x4 four four grid. You got 16 tiles in there and you have to get the numbers all in order. Did you catch my mistake? See, there aren't 16 tiles. There are 16 spaces. But there's only 15 tiles. One space is left open because in order for these tiles to move to new positions, you must have a large enough open space to move other tiles into. The tectonic plate rearrangement theory, which whichever supercontinent you want to pick, doesn't allow for this kind of space to move plates around. I'd argue that our tectonic plates are locked in place. I mean, they can shift slightly. Obviously, they cause earthquakes, but they can't wander around the globe. In fact, if these plates moved around and reoriented the globe in 150 days during the flood, maybe a year at most, can you imagine the massive underwater earthquakes that it would have caused if they flew past each other at this breakneck speed and then slammed into each other? Submarine earthquakes are known to be the leading cause of tsunamis. I'd argue that if the plates reoriented themselves at this kind of speed, the global tsunamis would have made Noah's Ark ride unsurvivable. And yes, I know God could have miraculously sustained them, but I think that's really stretching the narrative as written. So when you look at all these factors, combine it with the biblical account, I simply can't see how Pangea or any of those other theories could hold water. Pun intended. I believe that the mountains rose up and the valley sunk down, and I believe that includes the continental land that we see now, and the wind was blowing the water off the land as it rose up, for the most part, to the newly created basins that now hold the oceans. One more thing to think about, and I can't take credit for this theory. I think it might have been Henry Morris, but I can almost guarantee that you and I both have had this question. We find fossilized creatures on a fairly regular basis. Where are the humans? Now, I, I know, or at least we're reasonably sure, that oil is the result of plants, animals, and humans being buried under extreme pressure and heat, likely all or mostly as a result of the flood. But shouldn't there be more fossilized humans? Morris, or whoever it was, theorized that the humans were on the land that sunk down. So these fossilized humans would be found in the land under the oceans. That is a logical, plausible theory in my humble opinion. So when reading these articles about the supercontinents existing, splitting, existing, splitting, and in the future existing again, and then splitting again, I think the only supercontinent that ever existed was when the waters were gathered into one place, exposing dry land at the original creation. And call it what you want, but it did not then subsequently split into pieces and float around the globe. 
Furthermore, if the Lord tarries another 250 million years, which he can do what he wants, but I have a hard time believing that'll be the case, but if that were to happen, I maintain that the land will not come back together into a single landmass. It's simply not possible to rearrange the plates when there's no room to move the plates around. Unfortunately, this is what passes as science, both in primary school and secondary school. Money is spent on salaries, resources, etc. in order to produce these studies. They hold no benefit to society or humanity, and I believe they blur the reality of creation, young earth science, and humanist evolutionary fantasy. Like I said, AIG and ICR have much smarter people than I, and maybe my arguments have all been addressed, but I don't know how. I can't logically find my way past tectonic plate rearrangement now or in the future or in the past. And to further prove my point that these studies are unscientific and nonsensical, the first few paragraphs of the second article I talked about, they kind of prove my point when they imply that in 250 million years, you know, a quarter of a billion years, nearly all land mammals will die out unless maybe we can figure out some technology or maybe we can just live in space by then. I mean, look, if humanity still exists in 250 million years, you'd almost think the technology would have advanced, you know, a fair bit by then, right? I mean, the evolutionary tale of, of current humans, Homo sapiens, it says that they split, we split, into our own species about 300,000 years ago. So in 300,000 years, we advanced from basically educated chimps to some degree, smart chimps using rudimentary stone tools, discovering fire, discovering the wheel, living in caves, etc., to where we are today. And the so-called scientific study thinks that nearly all mammals on Earth will die unless somehow we figure out something we can do at a period of time 833 times longer than how long we've already existed up to this point, according to their theory. Now that to me seems... Uh, ridiculous, simple-minded, maybe unthinking, definitely scientifically ignorant. I would hope that in 250 million years, we would not only be spacefaring, but living on other planets, maintaining our home base of Earth like never before, doing just about everything short of breaking the laws of physics and potentially bending those to the breaking point. All of that, including effective air conditioning for a slightly warmer planet. You know, I think I'll stick with what the Bible tells me to be true and weigh what the world says in the light of that, rather than the other way around. I feel like I'm on more stable ground doing that. <laughs> Pun once again intended. And now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take off my glasses and gently set them aside. Just rub my temples while huffing and sighing for the next half hour or so. Pope Francis is the Antichrist. There, that should raise some hackles. The heckle is a hackle anyway. Okay, look, he's not the capital A Antichrist, probably, but he is an Antichrist with a lowercase a. You know, I got a lot of biblical instruction growing up. I, I went to church, I went all the way through Awana, and can still quote you 2 Timothy 2.15 pretty much at the drop of a hat. I attended Sunday school and youth group and so much more. That's in addition to the questions, the lectures, and discussions with my parents about a number of topics. That said, I'm surprised at how much I either missed growing up or just ignored, or maybe I was taught wrong, unintentionally, but just based on what I'd consider to be misinterpretations of the text or of prophecy, maybe. Now, if you listen to my goal updates as of late, you'll hear some of the questions and revelations that are hitting me as I work my way more slowly through the text. One of the things that's a mystery to most people is the end times. Now, I grew up with the idea that the end times was a time somewhere way out in the future where all the Christians would have been raptured and then God throws down on those left on earth. 
but we're currently in the end times right now. I mean, ever since the ascension of Jesus, we've been in the end times. As for the prophecy of Revelation and the supporting texts all throughout Scripture, I'll be honest, I've always been a pre-trib guy, right? Well, at this point, I can honestly say that I don't know what I am anymore. I mean, that's not exactly correct. I'm a student. Let's put it that way. I'm trying to learn what the text says and the various ways to interpret the text and the way it all fits together. And then uh, as I go through that, I'll try to figure out what I think I believe to be true at some point in the future. So I say all that to say this. I always thought there was one Antichrist. And yes, there is one specific Antichrist spoken of in Revelation. But as 1 John says in chapter 2, quote, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. See, now this is way back then, not way out in the future. Back before 100 AD, nearly 2,000 years ago, we were in the last hour at that point, and Antichrists were all over. If you think about it, Antichrist is simply an individual that is against Christ. Using that definition, I'd argue that the majority of the world is Antichrist. And if we narrow it down to those that are more or less, say, militant against Christianity, well, we still have a massive number of Antichrists. Back to the Pope. Is he an Antichrist? Well, I maintain that he's not only a believer and disciple of the world, of the humanist religion, he's a purveyor, he's an evangelist of that. Bottom line, his brand of faith or worship or whatever you want to call it is very dangerous, and in reality it's damning for those who follow his teaching. Now I've got a couple articles for this segment, one that will hit relatively quickly, the other will of sorts dig into farther, especially since it ties into some other information that I've just recently learned that doesn't necessarily shock me, while at the same time is simply jaw-dropping. We'll get there in a few minutes. Let's start with an article found on abcnews.go.com, headline, Pope suggests blessings for same-sex unions possible in response to five conservative cardinals. Now, this is an article from early October, so this is relatively hot off the presses. By the time the segment finds its way into a podcast episode, it'll probably be around the end of October, at least it's my best guess, so still fairly fresh. The article starts, quote, Pope Francis has suggested there could be ways to bless same-sex unions, responding to five conservative cardinals who challenged him to affirm church teaching on homosexuality ahead of a big meeting where LGBTQ plus Catholics are on the agenda. So, I mean, do I need to go any further with this? I mean, I really don't, but let's see what was actually said, shall we? If for nothing else but entertainment purposes, right? Oh, well, no, maybe not right. Maybe not entertainment. Maybe more of a horrible massive traffic accident where you just can't take your eyes off of the carnage. That sort of thing. Well, apparently this article stems from a response to five questions submitted by these cardinals back in July. But the questions and responses have only now been released to the public. Now, I'm not sure if all five questions pertained to homosexual marriage, but this article focuses on that singular topic. So the official position of the Vatican is still the correct position that marriage is between one man and one woman, which opposes quite obviously the concept of homosexual marriage. Pope Francis has stepped into the woke and pointless world of saying that legal benefits should be extended to same-sex unions, which, at least in the first world countries, hasn't really been a question for a long, long time. Now, although Mr. Pope hasn't pushed to change the official position, there has been no Vatican censure of Catholic priests in Europe that have blessed same-sex marriages. So, essentially, this is de facto support of homosexual marriage. 
In fact, in 2021, the Vatican was very clear that the church can't bless gay unions because, quote, God cannot bless sin, which is correct. But his popeness in this recent letter to the Cardinal said that although marriage is between a man and a woman, pastoral charity requires patience and understanding regarding homosexual marriage, and priests can't act as judges, quote, who only deny, reject, and exclude. He believes that the church should operate on a case-by-case basis because when there are requests for priestly services, benedictions, well, there are some benedictions that wouldn't condone marital choices. It's, quote, a request for help from God, a plea to be able to live better, a trust in a father who can help us live better. I mean, there's so much wrong there, even if we were to ignore the gay marriage part, but this is not why we're here. Interestingly, if you listen to my latest series on Andy Stanley's Fundamentalist Sermon, for lack of a better term, uh, his series I entitled My Review Series of Fundamental Disaster, you'll know that I mentioned Andy Stanley was going to host the Unconditional Conference at his church, a conference that condones homosexuality in adults and children and teaches us how to affirm and understand your child's choices, etc. Well, Albert Moeller commented on the destruction of Andy in a recent episode of The Briefing, which is his daily news-focused podcast, and Andy took an entire Sunday sermon to respond to the criticism. (laughs) Thin skin much? In that response, he spoke of same-sex-attracted believers who practice celibacy, then said, quote, But for many, that's just not sustainable, and so they choose a same-sex marriage, not because they're convinced as biblical, they read the same Bible we do, They choose or chose to marry for the same reason many of us do. Love, companionship, and family. Yeah, Andy's fallen, but that's really been known for a long, long time if you've been paying attention. I mean, he's just directly voicing it now. The Pope has capitulated to the world also. I mean, sure, the Bible says something different, but you know, sometimes you just gotta be you, and who are we to judge? Besides, the entire Bible, every last word of it only speaks about love and affirmation and acceptance, if you rip out about 80% or more of the biblical text. Now, according to Catholic.com, the Pope, being known as the Vicar of Christ, means that the Pope has, quote, supreme and universal primacy, both of honor and of jurisdiction, over the Church of Christ, meaning the Catholic Church, of course. According to Catholic365.com, the Pope, quote, can teach infallibly concerning faith and morals. This is a key belief that Catholics hold regarding the Pope. They explain, quote, when Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom, he said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, Matthew 16, 19. In Judaism, keys were a symbol of teaching authority. Whenever a Pope definitively declares a teaching concerning faith or morals to be binding on the church, the Catholic Church trusts that the Holy Spirit protects him from teaching error. This gift of the Holy Spirit, called infallibility, applies to official, dogmatic teachings of the Pope, not his off-the-cuff remarks. So, I'll start by saying, they're misinterpreting that scripture. No shocker there. This isn't giving man power over heaven. This is better translated as, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is more rightly concerning a body of believers seeking God's will in matters such as biblical discipline or discernment on a subject. So when acting in accordance to God's will, what they declare on earth will have already been declared in heaven, and they are rightly discerning that. 
Or it means that whatever the Pope says about faith and morals is spot on, and Jesus is up there scrambling to rewrite the text. I mean, it's one or the other, right? So the Pope is on the precipice of declaring homosexual marriage totally kosher. Hmm. Poor choice of words? Can't be any worse than old President Vegetable making the sign of the cross when he was with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> uh, I guess if the Pope makes a papal declaration that homosexual marriage can be blessed by the Catholic Church, well, it means that God agrees. This really kind of makes God into a bumbling, nutty Professor Mr. Magoo type, since popes have contradicted each other and they've contradicted the scriptures for years upon years. So I guess God just can't make up his mind, right? I mean, God's apparently looking at humanity thinking, well, I mean, if they think this is okay now, I mean, who am I to judge? How the Catholics can't see the issue in claiming their Pope is the Vicar of Christ when vicar after vicar not only contradict previous vicars, but Christ himself. I have no idea how they can't see this. But then again, we've got Andy Stanley and his ilk, and by we, I mean Protestantism generally. I mean, I, I don't claim him. But the bottom line is that what the Pope thinks is important is what God apparently thinks is important also. So the Catholic faith and traditions, form of worship, that's all up for grabs, Pope by Pope. Now, I know it's not quite as easy as that, but the Pope does wield a rather large amount of power and influence over the Catholic faith. The good thing is that this Pope is all over the things that really matter with regard to the gospel and the kingdom of Christ, like homosexual marriage, and found on PewResearch.org headline, The Pope is Concerned About Climate Change. How do U.S. Catholics feel about it? Well, I mean, if the vicar is concerned, that means that God himself is concerned about man-caused global climate change, so Catholics in the United States must be concerned, right? Tell me my logic is wrong, I dare you. So this Pope's concern about man-caused climate change is not really a new revelation. He's spoken about that as he's done with so many social justice and woke agenda topics for years, well before he ever ascended to the popery. Social justice was his bag, baby. In fact, that was one of the reasons they blew white smoke up their chimney for Francis, because of his humanitarian efforts throughout the years. So the reality is that political affiliation really drives your concern about climate change. If you're on the right, you're less concerned. If you're on the left, you're more concerned. What should drive your concern is religious affiliation. If you believe the Bible, your concern that man is causing climate change should be nearly zero. If you don't believe the Bible, well, I think you'd be very concerned as you really have no tether to reality. But that's not what we see, or is it? Pew conducted a survey in primarily the first week of June 2023 regarding views on global warming. There were four options to choose from. The first is the Earth is getting warmer mostly because of human activity. Next is the Earth is getting warmer mostly because of natural patterns. Then there's there is no solid evidence that the Earth is getting warmer. And finally, not sure. Out of all U.S. adults surveyed, 46% the plurality believe it's human activity, 26% believe it's natural, 14% don't believe there's a good evidence, you can count me in on that one, and 14% have no idea where they are in the world. Now when you roll up Christians, which encompasses both Catholics and Christians, the split is 37% man, 31% natural, 17% no evidence, 15% clueless. Looking at other religions or religiously unaffiliated, they found 64 and 61% man, respectively, 16 and 18% natural, 11 and 7% no evidence, and 9 and 14% just wandering aimlessly through life, I guess. And breaking specifically Catholics into other demographics, 18% of Republicans and 70% of Democrats think man is the cause. 
46% of Republicans and 13% of Democrats think it's natural. 22% of Republicans and 5% of Democrats don't believe there's enough evidence. And 14% and 12% shouldn't have agreed to take the survey. What are they doing? Hispanics are much more likely to believe in man-caused warming than are whites. And those 18 to 49 are much more likely than those 50-plus to believe in man-caused global warming. See, what we see here is that regardless of the Pope speaking for God, allegedly, Catholics are more swayed by political affiliation than they are the Pope. Now, let's be honest. Hispanics and younger individuals are more likely to be Democrat, while white and older individuals tend to be Republican. And we see the same kind of demographic breakdown with regard to Protestantism as well. 25% of evangelical Protestants who would be more likely to be Republican believe that man is causing warming. 41% of mainline Protestants, which would more likely be Democrats, or at least contain more Democrats, believe that man caused global warming. And 44% of historically black Protestants, who are even more likely to be Democrat, believe man is the cause of warming. So why is the split political rather than religiously affiliated? Well, I'm maintaining that it isn't. Jesus said, as written in Matthew 7, quote, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. According to PRRI.org, who conducted the American Religious Landscape in 2020 survey, they found that 70% of Americans claim to be Christian in some form. This is Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, and it includes cults such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. And yes, those are by definition cults, as they take what's real, and they add and subtract and twist it to suit their purposes, then they repackage and sell it to a group of adherents as the only true religion. They're cults. So 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. Well, at the same time, depending on the source, about the same percentage of Americans, 45%, either are or lean both Democrat or Republican. Now, I further maintain that you cannot be a born-again, saved individual and be a Democrat. I know there are those that would argue with me, and I can't claim that to be absolutely 100% true, but those that have a solid grasp of the gospel and salvation and yet vote with the Democrat Party, they're generally single-issue voters, and I'd say they're in grave sin. Although I agree that both of the main political parties, and really all political parties, are flawed, the Democrat Party has blatantly decided to advocate for satanic evil. They've always been evil. They've always advocated for slavery and debauchery, but they now simply say that they want to murder, mutilate, destroy, and enslave. But again, if 70% of Americans are Christians, 45% of Americans are Democrats, and the gate is narrow and the way constricted that leads to life, and there are a few who find it, do these numbers add up? I don't think they do. Now, not going to argue if the globe is warming or not. Some data seems to say yes. I believe a larger amount of data says no. Remember, Weather events and daily temperatures are not the same as climate. Personally, I don't think there's enough data, and frankly, I don't care. If it warms, it warms. I will argue to a much greater degree that man is not the cause of global warming. To support that assertion, let me present to you the sun and also the oceans. We, defined as most of the human population, quite literally have no idea of the immensity of the sun or the oceans, or the massive amount of climate-regulating power of those two entities. With natural occurrences such as wildfires and new growth, glaciers growing and shrinking, volcanoes erupting, and the massive amount of wildlife around the globe, our cars simply don't have the power to do what so-called science claims. I'd further argue that those working in climate science are following their religion, 
not science. They know better. I'd argue that nearly every one of them know better. But the money and the narrative, the agenda, and the power is too captivating, maybe too corrupting, to buck against the system. Some may be too scared to blow a whistle, and some are definitely duped. I'll give you that. Now, his popeness is not a scientist, but literally has access to the top minds. He has nearly limitless resources. He either knows his climate alarmism is bunk, but he sees this as a way to bring equity to what he perceives as an unfair world, which at a base level means he's lying to force an agenda, which means that either God is a liar or Pontificus Popus isn't very Christ-like, or he's completely duped which brings us back to that fumbling, stumbling, bumbling God figure who doesn't know what's going on and isn't able to give Pope Pilicus Francis any useful insight. Both of those options are suboptimal in the world of Catholicness. Regardless, the Pope, who should be on a relentless search for truth, doesn't care about truth. He cares about agenda. Catholics, who are supposed to look to their Pope for guidance, guidance coming down from on high— don't care what he has to say. They care about what their political party of choice has to say. Likewise, Protestants, who should care about what the Bible says, don't. They also look to their political ideology for matters of science, which in itself is a nonsensical statement. As Christians, we should know that the earth won't end and be remade until God does it in his time. Further, we should understand that God is sovereign, although to be honest, very few churches actually preach an all-sovereign God these days, regardless of what they claim they believe. And as such, if he chooses to trap greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and broil the planet, there's nothing we can do to stop that. If that's the case, however, he'll need to step it up a bit, as there is literally no indication that greenhouse gases are increasing and a lot of evidence to the opposite. And if God is all-powerful, if he's all-knowing, knowing the end from the beginning, why would he have not created this planet to maintain itself in the face of human industrialization? Or, or maybe he did. So the questions at hand are, why aren't the Catholics following their leader, and why aren't Protestants trusting in a sovereign God? And the answer is simple. We've ceded the world of science, as we've incorrectly defined it, to the world and decided that the topics such as global maintenance are outside of the realm of religion. We've given our minds over to the hysteria of man-caused panic rather than resting in the God that created all of it. More to the point, we've even given over our very reasoning and logic centers to be used and manipulated by man. If we used the brains created by and given to us by God, we would know to ask simple questions like, can we know the correct global temperature and how do we know? Rather than, what can we do so the planet doesn't warm a degree in the next 30 years and destroy everything? The current concept of environmentalism, the religion of environmentalists, is purely satanic, and it's very clever. When you boil down the desires of the green movement, the overall goal is the elimination of man from the planet. And think about what this movement does. Reducing atmospheric CO2 reduces speed and amount of plant growth, including food, which means global starvation increases. Reducing global temperatures also reduces plant growth, thus food growth. Reducing fossil fuel usage ultimately stagnates or reverses industrialization, which has been the greatest force in all of history that has pulled people out of poverty, eliminated isolationism, and provided food, water, clothing, and medicine, among many other things, to people around the world. Moving to an all-electric society will once again isolate humanity and will ultimately reduce human population. How? What will necessarily cause electricity shortages, meaning heating, cooling, water treatment, medical devices and services, and mobility will all be dramatically adversely affected. And the list could go on and on. So what happened? Why are we in 
this world of climate alarmism? Why are we quite literally anti-science and anti-God? And those go hand in hand. If you practice science with a stipulation that God can be no part of your science, you're in the realm of humanist religion. And if you've got the mindset that God and science shall never cross paths, you have a weak, impotent God, which is not the God of the Bible. So who exactly are you worshiping? Well, my friends, as many of us are waking up to some gross realities of life these days that not everything considered conspiratorial is theory, some of these have been proven to be facts, we once again find that we have been manipulated by powerful forces with the goal of controlling humanity. Don't take my word for it. Indulge me for a moment. Quote, Order in society is determined by the cohesion of its members. Until the middle of our century, this was normally ensured by a natural patriotism and a sense of belonging to the community and reinforced by moral discipline exerted by religion and by the respect for the state and its leaders, however remote they might be from the people. Generalized religious faith has now evaporated in many countries. Respect for the political process has also faded, leaving behind indifference, if not hostility. This is partly due to the influence of the media and partly to the inadequacy of the political parties in facing real problems. Minorities are increasingly unwilling to respect the decisions of the majority. Thus, a vacuum has been created in which both the order and objectives in society are being eroded. See, this is the problem. The old systems that would keep people in control, that would keep people walking in lockstep, apparently they failed. A vacuum now exists that could upset the maintaining of order by the elites. It goes on, quote, It is a law of nature that any vacuum will be filled and therefore eliminated, unless this is physically prevented. The vacuum of society seems to attract the best and worst at random. We can but hope that the semi-chaos which is now taking over will eventually provide the material for a self-organized system with new possibilities. The present system is not yet useless, but human wisdom must be marshaled quickly if we are to survive. The implosion of the communist ideology that had dominated the greater part of the 20th century was certainly spectacular, but it was by no means an isolated event. It coincided with the end of the American dream, which lost its credibility with the painful Vietnam War that deeply scarred the collective American conscience. The failure of the challenger, Hispanic migration, the phenomenon of poverty within plenty, drugs, violence, and AIDS, and the fact that the melting pot no longer worked were other potent factors in its demise. Having lost its position of unique leadership in the world, a leadership composed of a generosity laced with Puritan values and a cynicism worthy of the conquerors of the Far West, the American nation is plunged into doubt and is facing the often resisted temptation of withdrawing into itself, an escape that is no longer possible in the present global environment. See, the system has failed, right? Communism and Americanism have failed. A, a vacuum of leadership and order exists. And they go on to say that the various political systems have, have failed and only materialism now exists. They maintain that we existed in a period of thoughtlessness with no common goal, no common vision, which makes the vacuum even worse. This lack of collective order, this lack of collective vision means that trying to shape the world and their desire well, becomes harder. The good old days of collectively fighting the common enemy of Nazism or the Cold War era of battling communism and the Soviet Union are gone. But, quote, it would seem that men and women need a common motivation, namely a common adversary against whom they can organize themselves and act together. In the vacuum, such motivations seem to have ceased to exist or have yet to be found. 
They argue that it appears that a common enemy to hate and fight is necessary for mankind to come together as one, and man fighting a common enemy is necessary to shape the world in the desire of the world shapers. The conclusion to this chapter, entitled The Vacuum, is that a common enemy in the absence of Nazism and communism must be found. So the Council of the Club of Rome concluded this chapter in their report entitled The First Global Revolution as, quote, the common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap that we have already warned readers about, namely, mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. My friends, we, both Christian and non-Christian, Democrat and Republican, Catholic and Protestant, uh, we have been played. And because we have faith leaders, which include the Pope and so many prominent Protestant leaders that have been asleep at the wheel, they and we have allowed Satan to infiltrate even our core beliefs with unbiblical and ungodly worldviews. The Club of Rome is a global think tank that's been around for at least 50 years now that develops strategies meant to influence the world's elite, the global power brokers. Their desire is to break down the globe to whatever extent is needed and then reform and reshape the world in the image that they've decided should be cast. From an expose website of the Club of Rome from 1991, which was right after this report was filed with the decision made to, you know, make us all believe that man caused climate change, thus man himself is the real enemy, well, they list some of the members of the club that helped arrive at this decision. There may be a few names on here you're familiar with. Al Gore, Mikhail Gorbachev, Diego Hidalgo, Anne Ehrlich, who is the wife of Paul Ehrlich, who is an ardent global depopulationist, Kofi Annan, the Dalai Lama, David Rockefeller, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Bill Gates, Ted Turner, George Soros, Tony Blair, Deepak Chopra, Desmond Tutu, Henry Kissinger, Marianne Williamson, Jane Goodall, Juan Carlos I was the King of Spain, Prince Philippe of Belgium, Queen Beatrix of Netherlands, Vincente Fox, Helmut Kohl, and there are many, many more. These are the leaders of practically every nation, every corner of the earth that all agreed, not that climate change was an existential threat, but that they would tell us it was the common enemy. Need more proof that we've been snookered? Well, let's try these quotes from various environmentalists, shall we? Quote, we need to get some broad-based support to capture the public's imagination, so we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified, dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. That's Professor Stephen Schneider, Stanford Professor of Climatology, lead author of many IPCC reports. Quote, We've got to ride this global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we will be doing the right thing in terms of economic and environmental policy. That's Timothy Wirth, the president of the UN Foundation. Quote, 
No matter if the science of global warming is all phony, climate change provides the greatest opportunity to bring about justice and equality in the world. That's Christine Stewart, former Canadian Minister of the Environment. Quote, the data doesn't matter. We're not basing our recommendations on the data. We're basing them on the climate models. That's Professor Chris Folland, Haley's Center for Climate Prediction and Research. Quote, the models are convenient fictions that provide something very useful. Dr. David Frame, climate modeler, Oxford University. And quote, it doesn't matter what is true. It only matters what people believe is true. Well, that's Paul Watson, co-founder of Greenpeace. See, the Pope, Andy Stanley, so many religious and political leaders, the Conservative Party, and we, the people, have been derelict in our duty. If the Pope is going to be speaking the truth of Christ, why is he capitulating and potentially conspiring with the unscientific woke world of faux science in direct opposition to the Bible, to real science, to God's sovereignty, and softening the Catholic stance against homosexuality or elevating man's power over God's omnipotence over his own creation? Why is Andy Stanley telling his church of thousands that he's never practiced Albert Moeller's style of Christianity when they both purport to be essentially the same brand of Protestantism? Why is Andy Stanley not standing for the authority of God and his word rather than folding like a cheap suit to the irrational, evidenceless, emotional pseudoscience of evolution or transgenderism? Why are we, the American population, willing to turn a blind eye to politicians that are working to destroy not only the United States, but societies around the globe resulting in famine, poverty, starvation, and an untold number of deaths, all in the name of a made-up enemy, created to fill a perceived void required by the elite to be filled so as to drive us like cattle the direction they believe we should go. For those that are, or at the very least claim to be, Christian, we have lost, we're unaware of, or we've totally ignored the sovereignty of God. Did everything come into being through evolution? No. Could God have used evolution to create everything? Yes, he could have, but he didn't. How do I know? Well, the Bible tells me how it was done. It's quite clear, in fact. Could someone be made in the wrong body? No, it's literally not possible. What is possible is mental illness, and even that is ordained by God. There is no mistake. The Bible is quite clear that both the good and the bad are ultimately ordained by God, ultimately for his glory. So the person that's experiencing gender confusion, that's experiencing homosexual feelings, that is ultimately ordained by God. Why? Well, I don't know probably different reasons in every situation, but I know that what the Bible tells me is that this is true. Can the planet be destroyed by humanity? No. We know how the world ends, at least in very basic terms. We're not going to hasten or delay that day by anything we do. We're not God. God is God. Does the Pope speak for God? No. How do I know? Because God doesn't contradict himself. He won't twist his own scriptures, and he would not bend his knee to the woke mob. Does Andy speak for God? No, same reason. My best suggestion, search out and understand what it really means for God to be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and sovereign. This is the driver that moved me from what was generally kind of a typical Baptist to someone who considers himself to be reformed now. The man has free will, but that's defined as man will not act counter to his desire, not that his will can trump God's. I'm fully convinced that most Christians do not believe and do not want to believe in a totally sovereign God. And I'm further convinced it's because they don't understand it because they've never been taught it. And although we're all responsible for reading the scriptures and understanding what we've read, there's no question that we're all tainted in our preconceptions based on how we've been taught. The Bible is very clear. 
all throughout the Bible that God is in control of everything. This is his creation. We are his creation. This is the key to understanding how to obey the oft-repeated biblical command of fear not. This is the key to understanding that God is not fretting over what's happening on earth, so neither should we. This is quite literally the key to reality. At some point, all man will understand the total sovereignty of God. We should strive to understand this while on earth as best we can, rather than be blindsided with this reality in the next life. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Goal update number 35. Oh man, we finally made it. You didn't think we'd get here, but we did. So what's so important about goal update number 35, you may ask? Not really anything, actually. I just wanted it to sound cooler than it is. At least I didn't put any special sound effects in there or anything like that, and I could have. Don't you even think that I couldn't have done that. All right. We always start with weight. According to the old scale, I gained 2.4 pounds over the previous week, up to 196.4. That's too many. Yes, I totally agree with that. Is it accurate? Well, yes. At the moment it was taken, it was accurate. We'll come back to that. However, and hear me out, I've been thinking, putting some pieces together, asking some questions that have been floating around in my brain for a long time, well before starting these updates this year. This will take a few extra minutes of podcast time, but I'm going to take you on a journey through my brain thinking process. So hold on tight. Things are going to get all Willy Wonka, psychedelic, slightly psychotic boat ride here. First, let me thank Aaron. He wrote in with some ideas of what he's done over the last year or more, losing a lot of weight and pretty much maintaining it over a year now. And the self-control is admirable, to say the least. Keep it up, man. I don't know you, but I'm proud of you. Okay, probably seven or eight years ago now, I worked for the better part of a year to go from about 220 pounds to about 166 or 67, something like that. Might be off by a pound or two, but that gives you the scope. As I was getting into the mid-170s, the older ladies at church, you know, the ones that do all the cooking and the serving and want to make sure everyone gets way more than they actually need, they were asking me if I was okay, if I was sick, because I was looking very thin. And they were right. I was looking very thin. Here's the kicker. I'm only 5'8". Well, probably closer to 5'7 now, but based on being 5'8", I need to be at least 164 pounds max to be in my normal weight per the BMI chart. Now, when I graduated high school, I was 145 pounds, but I had no muscle tone. I came from mostly little people, not the TLC channel type of little people, just generally small people and were kind of naturally strong, for a lack of a better term. So it wasn't that I was weak. I mean, to be a little like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, you know, going back to my high school days, I was the push-up record holder, at least through my high school career. It may or may not still stand today, I doubt it, but I did 72 push-ups in a minute, and then I couldn't raise my arms for a day and a half. But I did it, and so it wasn't that I was weak, I was just kind of small and light and just naturally strongish. Then I got into college, did a couple years of lifting with a couple guys that knew what they were doing, put on muscle, ate a lot, put on fat, gained about 40 pounds by the time I left college. Well, 145 pounds is a weight. I don't think there's any way 
I'd ever get back to. I can't even imagine what kind of heck I'd have to go through and endure in order to get to that. And unless I want to get into the octagon, uh, there ain't no way I'd ever even consider trying to get there. So when I was approaching my 166 pounds, I asked my doctor what he thought would be a good weight. He said for pretty much everyone, he's always recommended that the lowest they go is the very bottom of overweight, which for me would be, I think it was 165 pounds. He said lower than that is too low for the general population. So that little factoid has been in the back of my mind for all those years. Okay, moving forward in time. I generally have been able to get to about 185 pounds with some work, but without too much trouble. And after that, it starts to get harder and harder, which is what I guess I would expect. When I made my big weight loss push, I did it through the use of the elliptical trainer, which I think is the best cardio machine out there, punching the heavy bag with an app that calls out the combos, and strict dieting. Now, by dieting, I mean counting calories, not really making any dietary changes. See, I know, and I'm a big proponent of keeping things simple. Losing weight, as long as you don't have any health or dietary restrictions, is a matter of calories in versus calories out. That's correct, but weight isn't that simple. I could just starve myself, eating a few hundred calories a day for weeks or months and not do anything. I probably couldn't do much anyway, I'd be exhausted all the time, but I could get down to the weight I'm shooting for, and I think we would all agree that that would be unbelievably unhealthy. I also know how to fudge my weight on my weigh-in days, which I've told you before. Don't eat popcorn, at least the way I make it, at least a couple days before I weigh in. Don't eat rice, at least the way I make it, the night before I weigh in. If I do either of those things, my weigh-in could be two or more pounds higher than it was the day before or a couple days after. That's likely the salt and water retention related. That's my guess. I don't really care if that's correct or not, just my guess. And if you've ever tracked your weight on a day-to-day -day basis, you know that... You could swing a couple pounds day to day or even morning to evening, and it all depends on what's going on, what comes in, what goes out, and what you've done that day. In fact, at the last weigh-in where I gained 2.4 pounds, I had one day where I overindulged, starting with a Golden Corral breakfast with an old friend I hadn't really talked to in about six months, and I was not going to miss that. But other than that, my days for that week were fairly good, and my workouts were good. But the night before, I had a big old pile of rice with dinner. So 196.4, is that real? Maybe, maybe not. So I've always been someone that's thought of fitness as weight. Well, weight and do my clothes fit. That said, I do have a layer of jiggly insulation around the middle, but it's not a massive amount, and I've got a solid core just under that. So I say I'm a good 20 to 25 pounds too heavy, but am I actually? Well, last night I actually took some time to organize my thoughts and I finally threw my main question into a search engine and started doing some reading. The question was basically, should I be tracking weight or fat and muscle percentages? I read a number of articles all saying basically the same thing. The term is body recomposition. The basic premise is to lose fat and gain muscle. I think we all know that muscle, being more dense than fat, weighs more per volume than fat. So if you lose fat and gain muscle, even if your weight stays the same or even goes up slightly, your body size will go down and your clothes will fit better. So fat is fat. You need fat to live. Sorry, ladies, you have more essential fat than men do. And then we all have some percentage of unessential or non-essential fat on top of that. Muscle is composed of cardiac or heart muscle, smooth or organs, and skeletal, like what we all think of when we speak about muscles. Then there's bone weight, water weight, etc. that makes up the rest of your total weight. 
What we really want to have is a fat percentage within a certain span and a muscle percentage at a certain level or above. This, more than just a weight number, better dictates health and may be why I hit a certain point and I get stuck and then I give up. I've got my magical scale that tells me all sorts of things, all by sending a massive electrical shock through the bottom of my feet. I'm assuming it's massive and I'm just really tough, so it doesn't bother me. I've been using the scale for right at four years now, so even if it's wrong, it's at least hopefully consistent. This year, the lowest my fat percentage got was in May at 15.8%. My weight at that time was right at 180 pounds. My skeletal muscle was sitting at 54.4%. My total muscle mass was 144 pounds. This last weigh-in, my weight was 196.4 pounds, my fat was at 17.6%, actually the same as it was a month ago, even though my weight was up by a pound over that time. My skeletal muscle was at 53.2%, the same as it was a month ago, but my total muscle mass was 153.4 pounds, up 0.2 pounds from a month ago. And I also noticed on my scale app that from when I started using the scale four years ago to today, I'm up 26 pounds and my body fat percentage is down 7.4%. So all that said, what do I do with this? Well, I think I need to rethink what I'm trying to do. According to my app, and you can look into various charts, there's some variation as to what's out there, but you can look at some charts. But according to my app, the fat percentage of 17.6 is deemed acceptable, and 17% is where you enter into the fitness range. I think I want to have a goal to be in the fitness range. Now, where in that range, which goes from 13 to 17%, I have no idea, but I would think at least 16%. My skeletal muscle is currently at 53.2%, which is right in the middle of normal, with 59% being the entrance into high. Now, I'm not sure how fast that number changes, so I'd like to have it higher, but the only thing I know to do right now is to track it over time and see what it does and then kind of figure out a goal from there. As for weight, I do need to lose some weight because I'm above where I feel good. What I've said for a long time is that I start to feel good at probably 185 pounds, give or take. So I guess I should readjust my goals to shoot for maybe 180 or 185 while recomposing fat into muscle. That said, this year, I need to work out, track calories, but I also need to start to figure out what my body does with fat and muscle over time with dieting and with working out and maybe with some slight dietary changes. That's part of the recommendation I'm going to have to think about because I'm a picky eater who loves carbs and starches. I'm going to have to really think about this. Okay, so anyway, I spent too much time letting you wander around my brain, but this is the process of asking why and trying to figure out what the data is telling you when the data doesn't match your expectations. So tell me if I'm nuts. I mean, I might be. I fully admit that. I'm not trying to cop out of losing weight. I still need to lose. I just don't know that I need to lose as much as I thought I needed to lose. And again, I, I'm not going to get into the UFC, so I just want a decent dad bod and to be healthy from a standpoint of not needing meds or not having any medical issues, etc., etc. Admittedly, I need to do some more reading and learning on this. Okay, I put a few links in the notes if you're curious what I'm looking at. All right, let's see if I can knock out the rest of this update quickly. <laughs> Spoiler alert, probably not. Reading. I was able to knock out 62 pages over the last week, which isn't quite my goal of 70, but it's close. I'm making good progress on this current book. Finally, that brings my total to 5,207 pages for the year. This one is perpetually solid green for the rest of the year. And days in the Bible. I did get my five days of reading over the last week, so that's good. That bumps me back up slightly to 80% of my goal pace, so we'll call that a light green. 
As for where I am in the Bible, in my regular reading, I finished the book of Genesis, and in my in-depth reading, not a lot of progress from last week. I'm through Genesis 6, verse 4. And what did I learn? What did I question, or what was I doing while I was doing my reading? In Genesis 42, Joseph is the second in command in Egypt. He's stockpiled food for the coming famine, and now we're in the days of the famine. At this point, Jacob, Joseph's father, has his 11 sons at home. Joseph is gone, dead in Jacob's mind. And their household, which is sons, wives, concubines, children, slaves, and animals, well, they're out of food, or at least they're out of grain, a necessary staple. Verse 1 starts with, quote, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Then he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from there, so that we may live and not die. Okay, Jacob was about 130 years old at this time. And if you remember correctly, he was a pretty old man when he got his family started. But even at that, the older boys were over 50 years old at this point. How is it possible that a bunch of men that have existed on the planet for 50 years or more uh, who heard the same things as Jacob? I mean, it's not like food in Egypt was a guarded secret. How is it that they were just standing around staring at each other while people were starving? Now, this doesn't say much for the boys, does it? And honestly, it doesn't say much for Jacob either. As a father, I'm looking at my kid thinking that, you know, as she approaches adulthood, she needs to at least have some basic life skills. And most importantly, she needs to be able to think. I've stressed that to her many times, sometimes in praise, sometimes as a general comment, sometimes in scolding. But the ability to think is very important. That should go without saying. But sadly, it seems to be a rare skill. And looking at this statement, it doesn't seem like Jacob stressed how crucial this was to his boys. And if it was one boy, well, that's on the boy. But all of them? That's a Jacob problem. Okay, Joseph accuses them of being spies, and at first says that all will be imprisoned, but one who had to go back to get the youngest brother, Benjamin. Then he changes his requirement, saying one would be imprisoned, the rest could return to get the brother. Reuben, the oldest, made the assumption that they were being punished by God for what they had done to Joseph about 10 to 12 years earlier. He didn't know that he was in fact in the process of being rescued by God and actually being blessed by God. How many times are we in the middle of trouble making the assumption that we're being punished. And we might be. But remember, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you're one of the elect of God, if you're saved, all things work together for good. We can't always see it. We may not live long enough to see it. But all things, when promised by God, means literally all things. All right, the boys returned with food, but they found their money in the mouth of the feed sack. So basically, they stole the grain. Now, if they had thought about it, rather than instantly panicking, they would have realized that they didn't put their money in the sack. Someone did that for them. So either they were set up or they were gifted, but they didn't steal it. But we see cracks in Jacob's character throughout the narrative of his life. We see this again in verse 36, when Jacob learns that Simeon had been left behind in prison and that this Egyptian ruler, Joseph, required Benjamin to come with them the next time and that they apparently stole the grain. And he says, quote, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Jacob is mentioned in the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, but it's by faith he blessed his sons on his deathbed. I think we see the humanity of Jacob here in Genesis. He, he was not a pillar of strength and faith like we idealize all of the patriarchs, really. He had his struggles with faith and fear, just like we all do. Okay, last thing. In Genesis 6, we have this weird narrative of the sons of God seeing the daughters of man, that they were good-looking, and took them as wives. The Nephilim were apparently birthed as a race, for lack of a better term. Then mighty men, men of renown, were created. 
The debate is around who are the sons of God? Are these humans or are these fallen angels? Well, John MacArthur says that these were demons. Gabriel Hughes from WWUTT says that they were men, and you can pick your favorite trustworthy Bible teacher, and you'll get one of those two answers, and the bottom line is that nobody really knows. Now, when I look at the term sons of God, in the Old Testament, it's used here, and it's used in the book of Job. In Job, it clearly means angels. In the New Testament, it's used in John, Romans, Philippians, and 1 John, each time speaking of redeemed man. Now, keep in mind that this is coming from a mouth-breathing moron, me, who has no education in the Hebrew language, just looking at the English translation, and I fully admit that I'm likely wrong here. But, as a thought exercise, here we go. What if sons of God in this case meant men who were faithful to God, Yahweh? This was coming into a period of time leading up to the flood, meaning that we're approaching the time where all the thoughts of the hearts of the men were only evil continually, but we weren't there yet. So were these men, just a few men, who were, who were still faithful to God, and because of that, these men of renown were born? We always think of the men of renown as the Nephilim, and the Nephilim is bad, so therefore these men were bad, and the children were bad, and the marriage union was bad. But I don't know that there's anything in these few verses that say that the men of renown were known for their badness. They were mighty men, legendary men, and without additional context, that could be in a good way or a bad way, right? Now, personally, I have a hard time believing that these were angels. Please don't tell John MacArthur I'm disagreeing with him. Although I know that demonic possession can be a thing, and I think that's where John MacArthur is a proponent of in this passage, a demonic possession of men creating children with women. But can demons corrupt the DNA passed on through the sperm that would then create a superhuman kind of man? I mean, we have nothing in the Bible that says they can or can't do that, but if they can, why haven't they done it since? It seems like a fairly simple thing to do if that's all it takes. I just can't see that as being possible. Furthermore, we know that the Nephilim were apparently a thing in the day of Moses because they existed in the Promised Land. This doesn't appear to be a new Nephilim race. It appears to be a remnant of the Nephilim, which would mean that there was Nephilim DNA in either Noah's sons or in one of their wives, right? In the same section of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, in two places, verses 3 and 5, the verses start with the word, then. Now, this could be taken as either a consequence, you know, because this happened, then this happened, or as a chronological thing, first this, then that. This appears to me to be more of a progression in time, not a result of an action, not a consequence. So it basically reads that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them as wives. Then Yahweh said man's days would be 120 years, which refers to the time before the flood, not a limit on our maximum attainable age. Verse 4 says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards because of the children of the sons of God and daughters of men, and those children were men of renown. Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth. Now, if you read this as a consequence of actions, you'd read it as the men of renown, which were the children born to the sons of God and the daughters of men, were the evil men, or the instigators of evil men, or the beginning of men turning completely evil, and God saw the evil and set the timeline for the flood in motion. The two events would be tied directly together. The men of renown would necessarily have to be evil in that case. If you read this as a timeline, you'd read that the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives and had children who became these men of renown. At some point after that, God saw that man was evil and started the countdown timer for the flood. For the children of this union to become the men of renown, they'd have to grow for at least a number of decades, right? Which was apparently the last bit of time needed for man to slide into every thought of their hearts being only evil continuously. But those two events, the children born and the flood timeline, 
would only be associated by being two events on a timeline, which means the children that were born and became the men of renown could have been good or bad or neutral. Bottom line, I'm not really sure what to think here, but if I had to guess, I'd say that this passage is speaking chronologically, not consequentially, and that the sons of God were not angels, and as of now, I'm kind of leaning toward maybe these were redeemed or righteous or faith-filled men, and the men of renown were actually children that were blessed by God because of the faithful men who were their fathers. But, like I said, this is probably contradicting pretty much every narrative and explanation out there, all given by much smarter men than I am. So, I'm most likely wrong, admittedly. It is interesting to think about, though, and this curiosity is only made possible by slowing down in the reading of the text and really trying to understand. Anyway, I promise you that this would go on long this time. It did. I'm not a liar. And with that, okay, bye. <laughs>